I'm <laughs> good morning. I appreciate the energy. Uh, I invite you guys to turn with me to First John chapter five. First John chapter five is where we're going to be this morning, continuing on our series through the book of First John. Uh, we are obviously missing a, a pretty good chunk of our church this morning and uh, vacation and work and other things. But specifically, there's a piece of us, a piece of our family that has uh, gone to prison this weekend. And, uh, and that is a comment I will never stop making. I love that the way that sounds, that, yeah, the big chunk of our church is in jail right now. Um, and that's because uh, maybe one day it'll be because uh, we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, as we, as we see in uh, the book of Acts, that the, the Christians were thrown in prison for their, for their faith, and they celebrate that they were counted worthy to, celeb- uh, to, to, to suffer for the name of Christ. And so maybe that'll be the case one day. Right now, it's by choice as they go in and proclaim the name of Jesus, and we celebrate that. And uh, we miss you guys. Uh, You'll watch this later. Uh, and so uh, it feels like a piece of us is missing. But we are so excited to get into 1 John 5 this morning. Again, we're, we're, we're nearing the end of the book of 1 John. We've been in this uh, for, a few, uh, for, for a couple months now. And so uh, I, just a reminder, what John is doing in the book of 1 John is he's writing to a group of believers who have experienced this, this church split, so to speak, where there are people who are uh, claiming to know Jesus, who are teaching things that are false about Jesus, and those people split off from the body of believers, and John is writing to these believers. He is comforting them, he's reassuring them, and he's also talking about these two different sides. Again, we 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 are calling this series, Whose Side Are You On?, because he's talking about these two different groups of people. You have the people who are believers, and you have the people claiming to be Christians who aren't, right? And and John is painting a very clear picture on both sides. And he's asking his audience, he's reassuring them, those that know Jesus, he's giving them comfort and reassuring that you are on the right side. But he's also causing us to, to ask ourselves, which side are we on? Do we know Jesus or are we claiming to be a Christian without living it out at all? Are we a true believer, someone who knows Christ, or are we in this camp of people who claim the name of Christian, who walk about and will tell people we're Christians but aren't Christians in reality? That's what John uh, highlights for us in the book of first John and we see this beginning in chapter 5 uh, chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 We're going to pick up where we left off last week chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. It says this Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father Loves whoever has been born of him By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God when he is concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Excuse me, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have have life. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it it challenges us. God, we can become 
uh, complacent in what we believe. We can become stuck in what we think. But God, your word challenges us to think rightly about you. It challenges us to think rightly about Jesus. It challenges the things that we do, the things that we say, the, the things we believe, God. It, and it forces us to, to think rightly about you. God, I pray this morning we would be molded and shaped further in the image of Jesus, God, that your word would go forth in our hearts and our minds, God, that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to us in your word, and God, that you would give us hearts that are ready to apply it this morning, God, that we would be shaped and molded and changed and, and better because of our time in the word this morning, God. We love you and praise you, and it's in the wonderful holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, I took the World History AP test. If you don't know uh, what the AP test is, it's an exam you can take at the end of a high school course that, uh, that lets you get college credit for the course. And so it's a, it's a difficult exam, it's a lengthy exam, and it includes a lot of multiple choice questions and then some short answer kind of essay type questions. And so, so I was taking this world history AP course uh, and this world history AP test, and uh, I, I had a friend who was taking it along with me, uh, and my friend uh, on one of the questions, uh, the kind of document-based questions that we had to write. We got a World War II prompt, and my friend did very poorly on it. I mean, very poorly. A and the problem was not that he knew nothing about World War II, and it wasn't that he was a bad writer. He actually wrote several paragraphs on this answer. He, he had great sentences. Uh, the, the paragraphs were excellent. The problem was that my friend was writing about World War II, and he was writing about the leaders uh, uh, of World War II, and he talked about this firebrand who was the prime minister of England at the time, Winston Churchill. Uh, and he talked about this communist dictator who ruled with an iron fist over the Soviet Union named Joseph Stalin. And he wrote about this wise and humble leader who skillfully managed to navigate the United States through war named Abraham Lincoln. And uh, if you don't know enough about history to know why that's funny, Abraham Lincoln was the president during the Civil War. And contrary to popular belief, Civil War and World War II are different wars. Those are separate things. And so, uh, so my friend got no credit on this question. I mean, he wrote an excellent uh, essay, but it was all about Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States during World War II. And if you're writing a history essay, that's not going to get you very many points. Right? The, the fact of the matter is that you don't get partial credit on these on these essays because you write really good sentences or you have these excellent paragraphs if the content of your essay is completely unhistorical then you're not going to get very much credit right you're not going to get partial credit because the sentences sound good if you're writing a historical paper on the fact that the United States dropped a nuclear bomb on Nigeria like you're not going to get credit on that on that paper right the content matters a lot more than the than the form than the prose than the the sentences and the paragraphs that you write you don't get partial credit because it sounds good or looks good and the reality is that you and I in our Christian faith we don't get partial credit because we follow religious beliefs and we try to do good things and we we sound Christian and we sound moral like we don't get extra credit because the sentences are good and the paragraphs are excellent you can look all around the world there are really good religions all around the world that teach beliefs and ideas, and you can follow any of those beliefs and any of those religions. You can check off a bunch of moral boxes. You can exhibit a lot of religious beliefs, but none of those things are ultimately going to save you just because you have really good sentences and really good paragraphs, just because you express religious devotion and you express some kind of faith and you check off these moral boxes. Those things don't ultimately save you. There is no partial credit because you look good and you live a religious life. You're not going to get partial credit in the eyes of God because you claim the name of Christian and you show up to church and you read your Bible and you say your prayers. Those things are good, 
but they don't ultimately save you. What John wants us to see this morning in the book of 1 John in chapter 5 is the thing that saves you is Jesus. We have to have the right faith in Jesus. This is what we see this morning. It doesn't matter how loving you are, how moral you are, or how Christian you sound if you reject the Jesus of the Bible. To say it another way, what matters more than anything else is the content of your faith. It's not the fact that you have faith. It's not the fact that you follow religion. It's not the fact that you check off religious boxes. Those are not the things that are ultimately going to save you. What matters the most is the content of the faith, not the, cer- not the sentences, not the paragraphs. It's the content. That's the thing that matters more than anything. The, the, the fact that you have faith is irrelevant. It's the object of your faith that matters. Your faith is only as strong as the thing you put faith in. And if we believe wrongly about Jesus, if we do not believe the Jesus of the Bible, if we reject that view of Jesus, then it doesn't matter how loving you are or how moral you are or how Christian you sound, the language that you use, how many times you go to prison to tell people about Jesus. None of those things matter if you reject the Jesus of the Bible. That's what John is going to highlight for us in chapter 5. But before he does, the first thing that John does at the beginning of chapter 5 is he essentially recaps where he's been up to this point in the letter. Uh, What he tells us at the beginning is that all Christians possess the same three qualities. This is something that he has written already in this letter. This is building off something he's already talked about in the first four chapters. All Christians possess the same three qualities. Uh, One, all Christians have faith in Jesus. Look with me in verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Every Christian has placed faith in Jesus. This is what he talked about in chapter 4. This is what kind of the the key thrust of chapter 4 is that every believer proclaims the name of Christ. That is true of every believer everywhere. If you do not proclaim the name of Christ, you cannot call yourself a believer. This is what he said throughout chapter 4, that you have those in this camp who are Christians. Those are the people proclaiming the name of Jesus. You have those in this camp who aren't Christians. These are the people teaching falsely and incorrectly about Jesus. And so this is the, this is the distinction between a believer and a non-believer. Is what do they proclaim about Jesus? We'll talk more about that in a minute because that's what John highlights later on in the chapter. The second thing that every Christian, uh, the second quality that every Christian shares is that every Christian has a love for their fellow believers. Notice what he says in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So what the writer, or so what John is saying here is that every Christian loves fellow believers. This is what he said in 1 John 4. This is what he says in chapter 2. Like over and over again throughout the book of 1 John, if you've Listen to, to, to the series up to this point. We've had at least three sermons that have mainly highlighted the fact that fellow believers love fellow believers, that that is a natural outlook and a natural response to knowing God. This is what we talked about last week in, in the second half of 1 John chapter 4, that God has invited us to enjoy and extend his love. And so as people who enjoy the love of God, naturally we overflow and we begin to love other people. As people who know God and have been loved by him, we love God back and love his people. That is a natural response to the people of God. And so John has made very clear in the book of 1 John, every believer loves other believers. If you're lacking a love for other believers, 
believers or even what he paints as the opponents, people who hate fellow believers. If you're lacking this love for fellow believers, you cannot call yourself a Christian. Every Christian loves fellow believers. And again, it's not like this is the the command, like the checkbox that you need to to make sure you're doing to get into heaven. This is what... This is what John is saying. This is evidence of your faith. The fact that you know and love God and are loved by him and as a result of that love other people, that's how this plays out. If you're lacking love for fellow believers, what that likely means is that you're lacking the experience of love from God. That you do not enjoy God's love. You're not overflowing with it. And so the problem for you, if you do not love other believers, is not that you need to earn up and, and get the love for other people, that you need to, to conjure this up with it within you and inside of you, and you just need to do it. The problem is that you need to love God and know how loved you are by him, and then that should naturally overflow into love for fellow believers. Which is why we can say that every believer possesses the quality of love for fellow believers. He goes on in verse uh, 2, this, the third thing, that every believer shares is obedience to God's commands. It keeps God's commands. Verse th- 2. By this we know what, that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. So what John is saying there is that we know, I- and we'll see this throughout this kind of summary of, w- of where he's at to this point. John is painting the fact that all three of these qualities, our faith in Jesus, our love for our fellow believers, keeping God's commands, these are all interrelated. They all interplay together in this one web that forms an evidence of the Christian life. You can't just take one or two qualities out and say you're a Christian. These all interplay together. And he's saying, we know that we are people who love other believers if we're also people who love God and obey his commands. We as believers are people who obey the commands of God. Notice what he says in verse 3. This is the love, for this is the love of God, meaning this is how we know we love God. That we keep his commandments. Not only that, his commandments are not burdensome. So we know as believers that we are Christians. We know that we are people of God if we are people who obey the commands of God. This is what he said at the beginning, all the way back in chapter 1 of 1 John. The imagery that he used is that of darkness and light. And he says, we as believers are united with the light. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is righteous. In him is no unrighteousness at all. And so as people who've been united with the Father, as people who've been united with the light, we are moving from darkness to light. We are people who are escaping the darkness, walking out of darkness, and walking into light. That we are people who are moving from unrighteousness to righteousness. People moving from from sin to to, light. love people moving from from unhealthiness to healthiness that we are people moving from darkness into light that is the mark of believers as people united with the light we are moving out of darkness and into light and it's not just that again we're checking off boxes and making sure that we become more moral he says the commands of god are not burdensome why verse four everyone who has been born of god overcomes the world we are able to move from darkness into light. We were able to move from unrighteousness into righteousness because God has set us free by Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has set us free from sin and death, has rescued us, has shaped us and molded us and freed us to live for him and has freed us to go from darkness to light, which is why he says at the end of verse four, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now his argument here. And these first four verses is, is, uh, is a little tangled 
and that's on purpose. I notice the interplay of all three of these ideas together, that, that you have faith in Jesus. Everyone who believes in Jesus uh, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, whoever has been born of him. So because we've been born of God, because we have come to know him, because we've been loved by God, naturally we love other people. So it's our faith that in Jesus that allows us to produce love and l- affection for other believers. And notice what he says in verse 2, that, that we love other people and we know that we love other people if we obey the commands of God. Because this is what he says at the end of chapter 4, that loving other people is a command of God. That you can summarize all of the commands of God with not stealing, not murdering. You can summarize those things in the command to love other people. So he says we know that we're people that love other people if we do what God says, if we're moving from darkness into light. And then he goes on and he says, we also know that we are able to do the commands of God. Why? Because we have faith, because we've been rescued from the world. These are all interrelated. And the point of that, the reason it's so circular and hard to, 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 pe- to pin down and understand, is John is making the case that we as believers share all three of these qualities. You can't pluck one out and still be a believer. They are all related to our love for God and being loved by him. They're all related to faith in Jesus. So every believer has faith in Christ. They love other believers, and they go from death to life. They, they keep the commands of God. These are true of every Christian. Again, you can't just remove one and say, well, I, I keep God's commands. I'm a moral person, and I have faith in Jesus, but I don't love other people very well. I don't, I don't love Christians well, but I'm still a believer. I'm two out of three. Like, check checking these boxes off. John is saying, no, the, the fact that you're lacking love for other people is evidence that you don't know the love of God. And so when you take one of those things out, the whole thing falls apart. We as believers exhibit all three of these things at all times. We are loved by God, that we have faith in him, that we show love for other people, and that we are moving from darkness to light, that we keep the commands of God. It's true of every believer. And John has has made this case before. This is a summary of what he said in the first four chapters, but he's going to really drill down on this first one for us in chapter five, our faith in Jesus. And here's why John is going to really drill down on this. I have met some of the most loving, kind, and moral people in the world. To me, in my life, some of those moral, kind, and loving people are some of my Muslim friends. I have several Muslim friends who they, they are so kind, so generous, so welcoming. They are some of the sweetest and kindest people that I've ever met. And yet, John wouldn't say that they're believers. John wouldn't say that they're Christians. Uh, the same thing would be true of Mormons. Mormons, uh, uh, I've met, I have several good Mormon friends who who are loving, who are kind. Mormons across the board are kind of known for their morality, for, for their family values, for, for living this, this very uh, Christian-looking existence. And on top of that, Mormons also claim the name of Jesus, as do Muslims. Both religions proclaim the name of Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They believe something about Jesus. And yet neither of those groups would fall under what uh, Scripture teaches as believers. Neither of those groups would fall under what Scripture teaches as being saved. And what John is going to do is he's going to say that you have to have faith in Jesus, that every believer has faith in Jesus, but it's not just the Jesus that we create. It's not just a general concept of Jesus. What matters is the type of faith you have. 
Who are you putting your faith in? What we see at the second half of chapter 5 is that the only Jesus that can save you is the Jesus that exists. All believers have faith in the Jesus of the Bible. It doesn't just matter that you say you have faith or you say the name of Jesus. What matters is that you believe in the Jesus that God is proclaiming in his word. The only Jesus that can save you is the Jesus that exists. Look with me in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is? It's the Son of God. This is the linchpin. This is the thing that separates believers from unbelievers above anything else. What do you believe about Jesus? Because the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who believes rightly about Jesus, he is the one who overcomes the world. And notice what John says beginning in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. This is one of the most difficult passages in the book of 1 John to understand. People have debated this forever. We can keep reading, and it says, The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And so uh, this is one of the most difficult passages to kind of break down and understand in the book of 1 John. What does he mean by the water and the blood testify? That Jesus came in water and in blood. People debate it. Uh, People go uh, back and forth. It's pretty clear uh, most people understand that the blood is his death, (laughs) that Jesus uh, died on the cross. Uh, But the water is what's debated. But this this is likely what this means. So John is writing about opponents who believe things that are incorrect about Jesus. And we can piece together from what we see in the book of 1 John, we can kind of piece together what we think his opponents believe about Jesus and are teaching about Jesus. And it looks like his opponents are teaching this early form of a heresy that says that Jesus was a man and that at his baptism, when he came up out of the water, the Christ came upon him and he became the Christ. And then prior to his death, the Christ left him. And so Jesus, the man, is the one that died on the cross. This is this view of Jesus that he is just a regular person. And at some point in his ministry, the Christ came upon him and then left him prior to his death. This is this heresy about Jesus. And so when he says that the, the one who came by water and blood, by, by his baptism and by his death, is Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. I don't know if you uh, have, have, have known that. Uh, Christ is the title, right? Like Christ is the Messiah. That is the, the word for Messiah. So, so Jesus was the Christ when he was baptized. And Jesus was the Christ when he died on the cross. And so Jesus the Christ was baptized. This is the story that goes back to John the Baptist. John, Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. He goes down to the Jordan River and he meets John the Baptist. And John has been, this is why he gets the name John the Baptist. John has been baptizing people and proclaiming the name uh, of, uh, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus goes down and Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me. Uh, and John does. He baptizes Jesus. What, Jesus, what John is likely saying here is that Jesus was the Christ when that event happened. John has already looked at Jesus and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, as both God and man, was baptized. And then a few years later, at, uh, as his ministry was drawing to a close and he gets to Jerusalem, Jesus was, uh, was persecuted. He, 
he gave up his life and died on a cross. And Jesus, as both God and man, willingly went to the cross, shed his blood, and gave up his life for us. Both the water and the blood testify that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Redeemer and the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Not the water only, but the water and the blood. And he says, not just those two, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And so these three testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. This is something that that, uh, John has already said all the way back in chapter 4, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is in the world proclaiming Jesus, lifting up the name of Jesus in the world, saying Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, come to save the world. Jesus is the one we need to put our faith in. Jesus is the one who has eternal life at his hands. Jesus is the one we need to look to. The Holy Spirit is in the world lifting up the name of Jesus, and he said, so John says the spirit and the water and the blood, they all agree. Jesus is the Christ. He's the one we need to put our faith in. He's the one we need to trust. Just as a side note, if you are reading in the King James Version in verse 7, you're, it's likely longer, uh, and it will say that the, uh, these three testify, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, the reason that it's not in our version, uh, if you're an ESV, NIV, NASV, whatever your other version is, the reason that's not in there in verse 7 uh, is because it's likely a scribal edition later on. It was likely not written by John. And we know that pretty confidently because the church in three hundred, in the 300s AD met together to talk about the Trinity and had a lot of debate about it. And this verse never came up. And if this said that the Father, Son, and Spirit all testified, that would have been like the first one. There wouldn't be much debate. right? So this was likely a later scribal edition, uh, which is why likely what it originally reads is, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Notice what he says in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe that God, did not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So what John is telling us here in 1 John is that, that these, the, when the Spirit proclaims Jesus as the Christ, and when the water and blood both testify that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior we've been waiting for, when God himself is saying you need to put your faith in Jesus, you and I don't have the option to, to reject that. If we're willing to take the testimony of man, if we're willing to listen to to somebody in front of us telling us what's true, then how much more should we take the testimony of God? God himself is saying, this is who Jesus is. He is my son in whom I am well pleased. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one that has come from me to save the world as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the righteous one. He's the one who will rule over all things at the end of days. Like This is Jesus, my son, believe in him and trust in him. The God who created all things is proclaiming that and testifying that. And if God is saying that, then we don't have the option to believe in a different Jesus. We don't have the option to put our our faith in a different Christ of our own making because God has already said, this is who Jesus is. Which is why in verse 10 he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, meaning I mean, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're agreeing with the Father, saying, yes, this is who Jesus is. 
But whoever does not believe in God, uh, does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So if you believe in a Jesus of your own creation, a Jesus that is different than the Jesus of the Bible, you're saying, what John is saying here, is that you're saying God is a liar. That God's testimony about his son is not true. And that you know better than him. This is serious stuff. We don't have the option or the luxury of making up a Jesus in our own image. I think about this. Uh, if you were to go to a doctor, let's say you haven't been feeling well, and you go to a doctor, and the doctor makes, uh, does all these tests, and they, they run all these scans, and, the, and then you sit down with the doctor, and the doctor tells you, uh, you have cancer. You kind of take it in, you pause for a moment, and then the doctor says it, it's treatable. And it, it can go into remission, and here's the treatment that we need to do in order to send your cancer into remission. It'll be these surgeries and, and this chemo or this radiation or whatever it is. Here's the treatment, and if you do these things, your cancer will go into remission. The correct thing to do in that situation would be to listen to the guy and say, all right, <laughs> let's do it. This is the cure. This is the, the thing that will send my cancer into remission. What would be a, a, an unwise thing to do would be to sit there and to hear it and to listen to his advice listen to the treatment, and to say, you know what? I hear what you're saying. That'll probably work for some people. Don't know that it's really for me. Uh, here, the reality is I, uh, I actually I, I have some essential oils at home, and I believe that the right mix of thieves and peppermint are probably going to send my cancer into remission just as much. You know, So that's good for you. I'm glad that that treatment will work for other people. No offense if you, if you, ta if you have uh, essential oils at home. Uh, but good for you. Uh, but but I'm gonna try my own I'm gonna try my own treatment over here and just just this will work for me. The reality is that you and I do that all the time with God. When we hear the testimony of God that says this is who Jesus is, He is my Son. He is the cure for your disease of the sin in the world. He is the one that will solve all of the the world's problems. Who will come again and redeem the world and set everything right. He is the one who has eternal life within Himself. This is Jesus. My son, the Savior. And we say, that's great. Bet it works for you. But I'm actually going to believe in this instead. I'm actually going to trust in this instead. That's great that Jesus is your son in, your, in the Bible, but I actually believe Jesus was just a man. And he had some good teachings, and I'm going to follow that. That's great that Jesus is the eternal son of God in your Bible, but I actually believe Jesus was created at some point, and, and that he came to earth just... Uh, as, as one of God's spirit children, and that's what he decided to, to do. That's gra like, it's great that, that Jesus is the, the almighty, all-powerful Savior, but I also believe that my religion will also get me there, or that my beliefs and my works will check off enough boxes and do enough things to earn heaven. We don't get the option of telling God that his way of salvation, that his way, uh, his, his, what he proclaims and testifies about Jesus is only partially true. Like, it's all or nothing. God has said, this is who Jesus is. This is the way to eternal life. And we either agree with it or reject it. We have to believe in the Jesus of the Bible because the only Jesus that can save you is the Jesus that actually exists, not the one you make up. We do this 
When we talk about a Jesus who just affirms everything and accepts everything and is willing to love me no matter what, and then that's my, that's my Jesus. That's the Jesus that I serve, that, that he's just loving. He just loves me no matter what, and he affirms everything. And, and, and my Jesus wouldn't send anybody to hell. My Jesus wouldn't really have that condemnation thing and the, the wrath thing that we see in the Bible. That's not my Jesus. Well, that's fine, but the Jesus of the Bible does. The Jesus of the Bible is coming to judge the world. He's coming to do away with sin and rebellion. You don't get the option on that day of saying, well, you're a Jesus, but my Jesus, I'm just going to wait for him. Like, that's Jesus, and there is no other option. Which is why he says in verse 11, this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever believes in the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that God proclaims and says he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he died on a cross for your forgiveness of sins and he rose again from the grave to give you eternal life and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the God, the right hand of God, and he is going to come back and restore all things. This Jesus, whoever puts their faith and hope and trust in him has eternal life because he's agreeing with God and saying, yes, that is Jesus. But whoever does not believe in that Jesus, even if you say you believe in a Jesus, even if you have all the Christian language and you live a moral life and you do all of these good things, even if you check all of these boxes off, if you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible, then you do not have life. Only in Jesus is eternal life available. Question for you this morning is, do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Do you believe in the Jesus that God has proclaimed and said, this is him. This is the way to salvation. Salvation is in him and no one else. He is my eternal son who has come and lived, died, and risen again for your salvation. Do you believe in that Jesus? Have you put your faith and hope in him? Because if not, the invitation is open for you. This is not a, a, a harmful message. This is not a negative message. The, 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 what John is proclaiming here is inherently good news, that if you believe in the Son of God, if you have put your faith in Jesus, eternal life is available for you. So the call to you this morning, if you believe in a Jesus that isn't the Jesus of the Bible, or you're asking questions and you don't, don't believe in Jesus at all, the call to you this morning is to place your faith and hope in Jesus that I'm proclaiming, the Jesus that God is affirming, that he is the Son of God who's died and rose again for your salvation. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you look at these three things and say, yes, these are all uh, uh, characteristics of me. I believe in the Jesus of the Bible. I see love for other people in my, in my life. I, I'm moving from uh, unrighteousness to righteousness as I, I follow God's commands. Like I see all of these things in my life. The question for you is, do you believe fully in the Jesus of the Bible? Or are there things that the Bible says about Jesus? Are there things the Bible says about the Father or the Spirit that you're a little uneasy with, that you're un- uncomfortable with, that you're not willing to accept? There's a, uh, an image in my head of a, I was reading of a pastor who was at a church that was struggling. And uh, he was at a deacon's meeting, and these deacons were very unhealthy in their understanding of Scripture. And, and, uh, and this pastor was going through a, a, this passage about where... Um, this is where a group of guys w- rose up in rebellion against Moses. 
and Moses had, had had enough, and he called on God and said, God, you see this rebellion, you see what's going on, deal with it. And, and Moses says, uh, in fact, he gets bold, and he says, if God doesn't create a brand new way of dealing with these guys, then, uh, then, I, then I'm not even God's prophet. Like, like, God's going to invent a new way to end these guys. And what happens right after that is the ground opens up, and these people in rebellion get swallowed up and go straight to hell, and get the ground closes back up over them. That's a pretty dramatic scene. And the, uh, as the pastor was telling the story and reading this Bible, one of the deacons reads this story, and he throws his Bible down and says, my God wouldn't do that. Well, then your God isn't God. Because the God of the Bible, the God who exists, did that. So my question for you, even if you know you're a believer, you put your faith and hope in Jesus, are you willing to believe in the God of the Bible? Are there things that, that about God that you're, you're misunderstanding or misbelieving or, or uncomfortable with? Like, let's have a conversation because the God that it, you don't get to pick and choose the God that exists. The God that exists is the God that exists. God says in, 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 Gen- uh, in Exodus, he says, I am that I am. Like, he exists. You don't get to pick and choose what he's like or who he is. And so if there are things about God you're uncomfortable with or unsure about, like, let's have a conversation about that. Because he's the God who loves you and cares about you. He's the God who wants you to know him and have a relationship with him. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. That your love that abounds for us, a love that led you to send your son Jesus to die on a cross for us, God, and I thank you for Jesus. I pray, God, that, that you will give us an appreciation and a love for the Jesus of the Bible, God, that we will help, you will help us understand that, that we don't get to pick and choose what Jesus is like. We don't get to pick and choose what you're like. We don't get to remake a God in our image. That is called an idol. But God, we choose to agree with you and to believe in you, put all of our hope and our trust and our faith in you. We agree with what you've said about Jesus, that he is your son, that he lived and he died for our salvation and rose again to give us eternal life. God, I pray if there's anyone in here that has never put their faith in Jesus, has never trusted in you, God, I pray this morning will be the morning that they put their faith in Jesus, that they agree with you and find eternal life in him. And God, I pray that we as a church will be people firmly committed to the Jesus of the Bible. The parts that make us excited and the parts that make us uncomfortable, God, I pray we would be solely abandoned and sold out to the Jesus of the Bible, the one who exists, the one we can, who is worthy of all worship and honor and praise. We love you and we praise you, and it's in the wonderful holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.